Awesome. Thank you so much for uh, being here this morning. Uh, And thank you to our readers of scripture this morning. I really enjoyed that. Um, I just, I love the way that everybody has been participating this summer in these worship services. It's beautiful. A couple of weeks ago, I had the wonderful opportunity to travel out to Pepperdine University in Malibu, California, to help lead a conference for women in ministry. This particular conference, called the Gathering of Women Ministers, is a conference that I anticipate every year. It meets in a different location around the country every summer, and this summer we lucked out as we all got the chance to go soak up the sun in Malibu. I know the Lord calls us to difficult work. Uh, Very tough, as it turns out. Furthermore, we were fortunate to be joined by best-selling author and incredible preacher, Nadia Boltz-Weber. And some of you may be familiar with her. You may have read her book, Pastrix. Or maybe you've heard Kent refer to her as the renegade bad girl of mainline Protestantism. She's a really fun person to be around, and we did get to interact with her quite a bit, uh, as our conference is very small. There's only about 70 women or so, and this conference serves a very particular purpose. This conference is for women ministers who come from a denomination called Churches of Christ, which is not to be confused with United Churches of Christ. They're very different. Churches of Christ, for those of you who are maybe unfamiliar developed out of what is called the Restoration Movement of the 19th century and could maybe be described as the wildly conservative cousin of other Restoration Movement denominations like the Disciples of Christ or the Christian Church. Churches of Christ have gained some notoriety for some of their more unusual traditions, namely the complete silencing of women. Women in Churches of Christ are not permitted to lead, preach, speak, or teach in any capacity in the public assembly. Churches of Christ cite biblical texts like 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Timothy 2, Ephesians 5, and other texts which seem on the surface level to be mandating the silence of women as a theological impetus for their exclusionary practices. Of course, between you and me, I think they might be missing something. It's almost like somebody went into their Bibles and ripped out a few hundred pages. But this is the denomination that I grew up in, and interestingly enough, it's also the denomination that Nadia Boltz-Weber grew up in. And while I know I'm kind of throwing them under the bus right now, I have to say I really do love them a lot. I mean, they were the ones to teach me about God, and many of the people at my home church have shown me nothing but love and kindness and support throughout my life. In fact, not all churches of Christ are super conservative. We have our renegade congregations, and we have a lot of renegade women. More and more women are emerging in churches of Christ who feel called to preach and teach. A lot of us who have discerned this calling in our lives uh, have had to make a very tough decision. Either we stay affiliated with the denomination and work within it to try to change it, or we leave. The Gathering of Women Ministers is a conference for us rebels who have chosen to continue to pour our lives into hoping the denomination will change. So when Kent mentioned to me the idea of preaching on the image of God and women here at United Parish, I laughed. United Parish doesn't need this sermon, I thought to myself. My husband and I have been coming to United Parish now for a year, 
And honestly, we chose to put down roots at this church because of your fearless inclusion of all people. For once, I did not have to fight upstream for women to be treated with dignity. Being here has felt like coming up for air. Each Sunday when I experience leadership from all sorts of gifted people, I'm nearly moved to tears. And I think to myself, this is how it's supposed to be. I'm so thankful for this church. But the truth is, there is still a message that we need to hear today. The image of God is still beckoning us toward transformation. The story of the Samaritan woman at the well still calls out to us with a fresh word. So I hope that our hearts will be open to hearing this new word today. Our text for today opens on a scene taking place at Jacob's well in Samaritan territory. And as you probably remember, Jews and Samaritans have a sordid history. Some of their most heated disagreements have to do with worship, like we heard in our text today. The Jews worshipped in Jerusalem, claiming that the temple in Jerusalem was the true temple, while Samaritans worshipped at Mount Gerizim, claiming that their temple was the true temple. Most of their differences abound between customs and traditions and worship, but by the time of Jesus, a lot of the schism between the two groups had to do with prejudice. Prejudice that was inherited from the narratives that they were all hearing growing up. And this is why Jesus' insistence on the goodness of Samaritans, the neighborliness of Samaritans, the value of Samaritans was so radical to his followers. So Jesus stops at the well to rest when a Samaritan woman approaches to draw some water. The text tells us that it was about noon, which is a really weird time for a person to go to the well. Most of the women would have gone to the well early in the morning to beat the heat of the day, but this woman came to the well when she suspected that she would be alone. She did not anticipate meeting Jesus there, and she certainly could not have anticipated what would happen that afternoon. Jesus asks the woman to draw some water for him, a segue into the conversation that he really intends to have with her. Jesus wanted to talk with the woman about living water. The woman is understandably intrigued when Jesus suggests that with this living water, the woman will never thirst again. Their conversation continues as Jesus tells the woman to go fetch her husband, to which the woman responds, I have no husband. In this moment, Jesus affirms her honesty, but then vocalizes her secret as well, that she has been married five times, and the man she currently lives with is not her husband. Now, if I had a nickel for every time I heard a sermon preached on this text as Jesus calling out this woman's sin, I would be a very wealthy woman. But I think such an interpretation really misses the mark. Some of you might remember that Kent actually preached on this text back in February. And in his sermon, he rightfully pointed out that the Samaritan woman had little to no legal autonomy in her society, meaning women could not file for divorce. Women most of the time could not own property. Uh, most women could not work unless they had been raised in a particular trade. This Samaritan woman, like all the other women of ancient Palestine, was forced to survive within a system that actively deprived her of her dignity, her value, and her well-being. 
We don't know why her marriages didn't last. For all we know, she may have been a widow several times over. What we can know with certainty is that a woman who had been married multiple times in ancient Palestine, who lived with a man who was not her husband, even if it was for survival, was looked upon with shame. It's no wonder the woman comes to the well alone in the middle of the day. This is how she survives, away from the peering eyes of judgment and condemnation. And yet, Jesus sees her in a different light. The Samaritan woman even suspects that maybe Jesus will try to argue with her about the temples. But Jesus has to redirect the conversation. See, he doesn't want to have one more conversation about who is right and who is wrong. He doesn't even want to have a conversation about why she has had five husbands. She doesn't owe him that explanation. Jesus wants to talk about a new way of seeing and being seen in the divine image. Jesus wants to talk about that water and living water. See, the water they've all been drinking is insufficient. Jesus wants to offer the woman something a little different. You know what's in the water she's been drinking? Loneliness, shame, the unbearable burden of a patriarchal system, the inescapable matrix of prejudice that forces Jews and Samaritans to clumsily dance around each other, avoiding each other at the marketplaces and wells, taking lengthy detours around each other's territories. It's toxic water. But it's the water they've all been drinking, and it simply will not do anymore. Jesus offers the woman living water, an abundant life in which she can be free from the narratives that have been forced upon her. She can be free to live as the daughter of God she was created to be. Free to be the daughter of God made in the image of God, illumined in the love of God. And we know that she welcomed this living water because we get this little detail at the end of the story that tells us that many people came to believe because of her testimony. In fact, in Eastern Christian traditions, the Samaritan woman is venerated as a saint, and she was given the name Saint Fotine, meaning the illumined one. And I believe that this is where our text reaches us today. I don't know if you had a chance to read the church blog this week. If you did, you might remember that I shared a little bit about my poor eyesight. I have needed to wear corrective lenses since the fourth grade, and my eyesight has only gotten worse the longer I've been in school. In the blog, I mentioned how I recently accidentally took out my contact lenses before I had located my glasses, a scenario that admittedly takes place far more often than I'd really like to admit. I proceeded to stumble around my apartment, calling out to my husband on the couch to help me find my glasses. I continued to call out to him, wondering if he may have fallen asleep. But then, when I reached the couch to shake his shoulder, I discovered that I had mistaken a blanket for my husband. My husband, Nate, was out walking the dog, and I had been talking to a blanket for a solid five minutes. I need corrective lenses because I do not see clearly on my own. Not all of us require help with our eyesight, but I do think that most of us struggle with ways of seeing. 
All too often we fail to see ourselves and others as image bearers of God, opting instead for incorrect perspectives of humanity. I know that what I shared with you in the beginning about Churches of Christ might sound pretty crazy to most of you, but honestly, their patriarchal practices are just a reflection of the what the world has taught us to regard women. Sexism is in the water they drink. They have opted for a defective way of seeing women rather than embracing the corrective lens that Jesus offers. And honestly, if we think pretty hard about our own context, we might find that we too have often rejected living water. We too have embraced a way of seeing others, seeing ourselves even, that denies the image of God. While our church welcomes women and LGBTQ persons and people of many different backgrounds, I sometimes have to wonder if we carry this inclusion and love beyond our building. Who is our Samaritan woman? And what's in the water that we drink? We sometimes speak of the poor, oppressed, and marginalized as abstractions on Sunday mornings. But think for a moment, how do we engage these real human persons throughout the week? Maybe we're willing to take pity on the poor and marginalized, but are we ready to recognize them as our equal siblings and cousins in the image of God? Maybe we're ready and willing to educate those ignorant people who disagree with our politics, but are we ready to let them speak to us as well? Maybe we're much more comfortable extending a dollar or a sandwich downward to a person on the ground, but the idea of welcoming them to rise and participate in mutual hospitality rarely crosses our minds. Maybe we're comfortable and hospitable when we welcome our Muslim brothers and sisters to our church building, like we did a few weeks ago. But maybe we've failed to extend personal relationships to the Muslim brothers and sisters in our buildings and in our neighborhoods. Maybe we are disgusted by persons who endorse corrupt government policies. And yes, to be clear, corrupt policies should disgust us. But those people are still people. They didn't stop being human. They're not monsters. Certainly dangerous people scare us, and those of us who have been on the receiving end of sexism, racism, homophobia, and any other defective way of seeing have our justified reasons for putting up our guards. But would we show love to our enemies? Would we pray for those who persecute us? Would we hold on to hope that maybe God is not finished with their stories. The story of the Samaritan woman in John 4 reminds us that Jesus offers a different way of seeing people, and this way of seeing people is transformative for individuals and for entire communities. The Samaritan woman is not relegated to a life of shame and loneliness. She's remembered as the illumined one, as a preacher of the gospel. So who is the Samaritan woman for you? And will you accept living water? 
Jesus meets us all at the well from time to time as we need reminders of who we truly are. So let us not be like the disciples muttering with incredulity at the way Jesus greets our least favorite people. Let us rather join Jesus in reminding each person of their inherent worth. And let us see the world through the eyes of Jesus, seeing each neighbor as an illumined child of God.